Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Jess Braven. Jess Braven covers the United States Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal. He is also the author of The Terror Courts, an award-winning account of military trials at Guantanamo Bay. He previously served as the Wall Street Journal's United Nations correspondent and as a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Jess Braven. Uh, well, thanks to uh, Zoclo and UCLA for uh, inviting me uh, back home to, to do this. But uh, let's uh, get to the people who you came uh, here to uh, listen to. Uh, we've got, uh, starting from my right, we've got Beth Colgan and Adam Winkler, both from UCLA Law School. Beth uh, has specialized in criminal justice issues and juvenile justice issues. Uh, Adam uh, also does constitutional law and has written some, some very uh, good books that uh, popularize important topics. Uh, uh, most uh, recently, We the Corporations, uh, about uh, the uh, legal status of uh, everyone's favorite uh, artificial entity. Uh, and then we have Justin Driver, who's come in from Chicago. Uh, I heard it's, it's uh, reached a high of 40 today. Uh, and uh, Justin has a, a new book out, The Schoolhouse Gate, uh, on the uh, Supreme Court's uh, and the Court's impact on uh, education and, and equity. Uh, and uh, so we're going to uh, be talking about the, uh, some areas of their expertise, but also uh, more broadly about the Supreme Court and its uh, direction uh, and its impact on our country going forward. Now, I, when I you know, landed at LAX a few days ago, uh, it seemed like the Supreme Court was a, a million miles away from here because it seems, when you cover it, like an extremely specific place. It's one building, it's on one street, uh, very familiar faces, only a couple hundred people work there, uh, you know, and, uh, and yet one cannot fully escape its impact. Today we had some uh, news related to the court. Um, there were several dozen ethics complaints that were filed against uh, Brett Kavanaugh when his nomination to the Supreme Court was pending. Most of those dealt with, you know, uh, people saying that his testimony didn't match some of the documentary evidence or the records that were released uh, by the, the government by, from his, uh, his prior service. Uh, those complaints were referred by the D.C. Circuit, which was the court he formerly served on, to the, the Chief Justice of the United States. He sent it to the Tenth Circuit Court in Denver to examine those complaints. And after uh, several months, the Tenth Circuit uh, determined uh, today that uh, it had no jurisdiction to even review the substance of those complaints. <laughs> And the reason, the reason is that uh, federal law provides a certain mechanism for evaluating the ethics and behavior of uh, lower court judges, but not for Supreme Court justices. And so the Tenth Circuit said, even though some of the allegations uh, involved his uh, tenure on the D.C. Circuit Court, once uh, an intervening event, that being his confirmation uh, to the Supreme Court, takes place, they lose the power to... Uh, review uh, his uh, conduct even as a, a circuit judge. Uh, and so uh, those, uh, uh, but the 10th the Circuit did, however, release uh, the dozens of complaints. Uh, so if anyone is curious to see what he was accused of doing, uh, or uh, they're, they're now uh, on, online. But that points out that the Supreme Court is, uh, uh, is unique in many, many ways. And one is that it really is not answerable uh, directly to, to anyone but, but itself. Uh, and we asked, by the way, the, the Chief Justice if he would pick up the uh, review that the Tenth Circuit said it couldn't uh, pursue, uh, and he uh, declined to comment to us. So we don't know what will, what will happen uh, uh, there. So that is the Supreme Court uh, still in the news today. Uh, there are a lot of issues that will be coming up before the Supreme Court. Some are cases that we know are headed that way, and we hope to talk about them. They involve the, uh, the DACA program, the, uh, the temporary relief for uh, uh, young uh, immigrants who, uh, who, uh, who came to, to the U.S. Uh, without authorization. Um, the, some of the other, uh, 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 some many, many immigration matters, the latest decision involving the Affordable Care Act, those things will probably reach the Supreme Court very soon, or a little less soon, but, but they will get there. And then we have other big questions that we know uh, are on some people's minds, which uh, has to do with uh, separation of powers or, or executive power. What happens if there's a conflict 
just say, hypothetically, <laughs> between one branch of government and another over conduct or then, then, uh, you know, then those issues may have to go to the Supreme Court, and we know that's, that's a, an issue that you know, the Supreme Court has had to deal with uh, at various points in its history. How it will now, I think, uh, will be something of, uh, uh, that we'll all be watching very carefully. And, and certainly people who cover the court hope that's true, because so far the term has been kind of Dullsville. So uh, with, with, with that said, let me, let me then uh, turn over and we'll, we'll, we, can, we can begin uh, uh, here, um, you know, there was a, uh, we, um, the, the, the cases that have, have, uh, uh, have really sort of dominated the, the docket so far at this term really have been, you know, business and economic cases. And I thought we might talk, to, uh, ask Adam to tell us a little about where the court has been moving. Uh, in the area of economic regulation, uh, consumer regulation, and, and so forth. I mean, we had, uh, uh, and, that, and that may uh, relate as well to uh, some of the issues involving uh, you know, labor. We saw the, the, the Janus decision uh, last term uh, involving uh, uh, whether there can be uh, mandatory dues in the public sector employees. What, uh, what is the, uh, the trajectory of, uh, of the Supreme Court when it comes to economic regulation? Um, well, just uh, thanks for the question, and uh, thanks uh, to Justin and Beth for, for being here, too, and uh, for, to Zocalo and for UCLA for having us out. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here and have this kind of engaged, vibrant discussion about these important issues. So uh, with regards to business regulation, I think the court's direction has uh, kind of already been set in some ways. Uh, the Roberts Court has already uh, defined itself in some ways on many of these issues with regards to consumer rights. Um, the court has curtailed the ability of consumers to bring class action lawsuits, has curtailed the ability of people to uh, fight arbitration, to actually go to court and sue your corporation that has offended you rather than hurt you, rather than um, uh, be forced into arbitration. Uh, and as you mentioned, the court has already uh, made it a little bit tougher for uh, public employee unions to operate. Uh, and some of the principles that are articulated in the Janus case, dealing with public employee unions, seem clearly applicable to private employee unions too. Justice Alito's opinion, for instance, in the Janus case that struck down, uh, uh, that made it harder for public employee unions to uh, collect fair share dues from uh, non-members, um, uh, some, one thing Justice Alito says is that any kind of closed shop substantially restricts the rights of individual employees. So if that's the case, then it's hard to see how unions can survive even in the private uh, workplace. Um, but we are seeing um, uh, a lot, I think one of the things that we will see more from Justices Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch um, is the court um, making it harder for administrative agencies to regulate big business. Um, one of the big things that Neil Gorsuch has really been pushing uh, when he was a lower court judge, uh, and it's likely to come up again here at the Supreme Court, um, is a, a doctrine uh, known as Chevron deference. And uh, Chevron deference is not a gas station or letting someone go ahead of you at the gas station line, but it's a really actually important rule of the law that says that where an administrative agency has been empowered by Congress to regulate something like, say, the environment. Um, uh, well, under the Chevron deference, uh, the courts will defer to administrative agencies like the EPA when it issues interpretations of that statute. So long as the statute's somewhat ambiguous, so we'll defer to the administrative agency. They're the experts. Uh, and the court is really starting to curtail that. And it seems almost certain that the court is going to overturn that precedent and say that instead judges should be interpreting the statute in the first instance and holding administrative agencies to what the statute says in the judge's view, not what it says in the administrative agency's view. And so this is gonna make it a lot harder for administrative agencies that are dealing with 40, 50 year old statutes uh, that give them the power to do something like regulate clean air and clean water and respond to changes in technology, uh, changes in, uh, in how we approach certain kinds of problems um, will be harder because administrative agencies will have less wiggle room. And so that's one of the big areas well, we're likely let, let me, to see uh, big business. Let me ask business. you a follow up here on that, on that one. And of course, uh, you know, Beth, Justin, you know, jump in as well. You know, we, we typically use, you know, liberal, conservative or left, right as a shorthand in talking about the Supreme Court. And it, 
and, and other institutions too, but, and, but you know, and, and justices sometimes are annoyed by that because they say that their thinking is more sophisticated than, the, than those, but they understand why we need at least a general shorthand. Uh, you know, is that idea that courts have to defer to uh, agencies a liberal or conservative concept? I mean, you know, uh, should, should courts, let's say, you know, the, the Trump administration has been very anti-regulatory. Should courts defer to those agencies as they unwind regulations that they think are not justified? Uh, in other words, is that, you know, does that point in any particular direction or is it just sort of a, a way of, of doing business by the government? Well, I think it points in directions, but it's not in the direction of left or right, necessarily. Um, uh, it's currently a reform that's been promoted mostly on the right for fear that administrative agencies are regulating business too much. Um, but I think you're right. At the end of the day, if you're not going to defer to administrative agencies, uh, the question is whether that administrative agency is pursuing conservative goals or liberal interpretations of the, the statute. Um, and if you're deferring, it might impact uh, uh, either way, uh, both sides uh, of I mean, who uh, the was dispute. the other party in Chevron? What was that organization called? <laughs> uh, yes, the, it was the, um, it was the Natural Resources, Natural Resources Defense, Defense Council. Council, right. Um, so, um, uh, so it's certainly true that lack of deference to um, administrative agencies does not cut left or right necessarily, but it does almost inevitably cut pro-business. Uh, because those administrative agencies that we're, that, that we're really talking about, mostly in the environmental and highly, regulatory, uh, highly regulated spaces, uh, we're talking about uh, areas in which administrative agencies are trying to stop big business from hurting consumers or hurting investors. And if we're not going to defer to those agencies, uh, it's less likely that those regulations will survive. Um, well, you know, the... Uh, uh there are some unregulated areas of uh, right now. We have, for example, on the you know the, the internet is a highly unregulated area. Uh, actually, a lot of the recent uh, uh, technological developments have occurred without any direct response by by the legal system. And uh, you know, one area I thought maybe Beth you might talk about is the you know what what rules the court might be setting and what direction it might be going in when it comes to. Uh, you know, technology and, and, and privacy. I mean, here we really have seen Congress do very little in this area over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, we've seen the Supreme Court have to sort of start fashioning new rules about searches and what kind of information uh, police or, or federal authorities need uh, or need to get a warrant in order to uh, obtain. Uh, what is, what is uh, I mean, it seems that it might be an area where the court has a particularly outsized impact just because those are constitutional rules in, in, in many instances. Where, where are we headed there? So the, the best signal we have as to where we're headed is a case that came out in June called Carpenter. And Carpenter involved the police using cell site location information. So it's when your phone pings a cell tower, it, 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 it tracks us all every time it, it, it's sending a signal. And in that case, the police had used cell site location information for a particular person to track his location around the times of particular crimes. And the question was whether that was a search for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. And the test that the court was using in that case is a test that dates back to the 1960s from a case called Katz. And Katz says if you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the item being searched or in, in the um, search itself, then there is no Fourth Amendment violation that can occur. And in particular, since Katz, the court has said, if you expose the information to a third party or to the public in any way, then you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. So one of the key cases in that, surprisingly, is you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your bank records because you've exposed that information to your bank. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the numbers you dial from your phone because you're exposing that to the telephone company. And so if you played that out, it would make sense that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your cell site location information because of course that's going through the cell towers which are owned by private companies. And the court said actually no, we're not going to uh, take the third party doctrine that far in part because it does two things that offends the, the Fourth Amendment. One is that it allows 
the way we use technology today would allow the police to create a mosaic of a person's life, to know everything about them because of how much we use our phones. And in fact, in the um, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion in Carpenter and equated our phones to having an ankle monitor on at all times. And uh, the second thing is it does that, that was worrisome to the court is it makes policing too easy. And the idea of the Fourth Amendment was to throw up some obstacles to the police um, and, and make it so they can't just do anything they want to find information. And it's just too simple when you can get information um, sorted through an algorithm and, and, and find the answer to who you're looking for. And so, um, and so in that case, the court said, we're, we're not going to extend a third party doctrine to this new technology. And that's, that follows on the heels of them making similar moves with respect to searches of cell phones in the last few years and with respect to GPS devices placed on an automobile. Uh, but perhaps the most interesting thing about this was it was our first opinion on a criminal justice issue from Justice Gorsuch. And uh, he dissented in the case, but in a very pro-defendant manner. Um, signals that he may have a Scalia-like approach to the Fourth Amendment. And basically all he was saying is it shouldn't be up to the court to just these nine people to decide when something's private or not. You should have to look at positive law, um, something that the legislature has passed to indicate that there is uh, there's a, an interest in privacy, and he pointed out that you could have done that in this case because there are laws protecting how companies do and don't use cell site location information. Uh, but the parties below hadn't raised that, and that's why he dissented. What what does that point to, though, as the as the court addresses the the impact of of technology on privacy and on law enforcement? I mean, uh, you know, Justice uh, Kavanaugh at his uh, confirmation hearings listed that as one of the most important issues going forward, how the court is going to address those changes. Uh, it is an area that uh, Chief Justice Roberts has uh, made a, a personal priority, it, it seems. Uh, generally, you know, the, you know, those are rules that help criminal, help guilty criminal defendants. I mean, those are the people who tend to benefit from those rules because uh, incriminating evidence can get thrown out of court. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know civil uh, uh, libertarians or, or you know defense uh, uh, you know sympathetic uh, uh, people lamented uh, Justice Kennedy's retirement. Where, where was he, where's he on those issues? Uh, Justice Kennedy dissented from Carpenter. He thought that the third party doctrine should apply to cell site location information. You know, one of the things about Justice Kennedy that's interesting in terms of criminal justice issues is that on a handful of issues he was. Uh, he was quite progressive. So he had a sort of change of heart about prison conditions in recent years. He, of course, was involved in, in a number of cases in which we, uh, in 2005, uh, the court held that it was unconstitutional to execute children uh, for the first time, and then in uh, subsequent years that it was unconstitutional to sentence a child to life without parole for a non-homicide offense and to do it automatically for a homicide offense. But beyond that, Justice Kennedy was not particularly defendant, or at least not consistently so. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Justice Kavanaugh fills that place. And we don't have a lot of insight into that because there isn't much criminal, there aren't many criminal cases that make their way up through the DC circuit. So there's not a lot we can look to to determine um, his, what his approach might be. Uh, last uh, line for, for now on, on this. What's, what do you think the next issue when it comes to, to technology and, and and uh, criminal procedure is going to be? What's, what's the next one on the horizon that you see? Well, there are a handful of things that are making their way up through the courts. Um, there's uh, automatic license plate readers are being used by uh, the police quite frequently in many jurisdictions. There are places like Baltimore that have uh, had in recent years a program where they have planes flying over the city that records every, record everything that happens in the city and it's stored indefinitely so the police can, can go back historically to find um, anyone who was near a crime or a protest, uh, for example. And, um, you know, it, it, honestly, it's, it, I, always, I always tell my students that I fear our future robot overlords, but I think the court does too a little bit, right? I mean, they're very nervous about these technologies and not just because it potentially makes it easier to commit a criminal offense, but because it affects all of our lives in a way that, it, that is potentially quite disturbing. Um, you know, another thing that, uh, that, that Justice uh, Kavanaugh uh, said during during his confirmation hearings was his uh, admiration for 
the Brown versus Board decision in, in 1954, which, uh, which uh, you know, found school segregation unconstitutional, and he, he described it as a, a, a great uh, a monument of, of, of legal textualism. Um, some, some scholars may have, have different views on that, but it did certainly highlight the, uh, uh, the importance of the Supreme Court in uh, civil rights and civ uh, cases and in equality issues, and the court has been very uh, active in areas involving voting rights uh, and civil rights uh, in, in recent years, and because that is your new book, uh, I was hoping you could tell us about what, uh, both what the, what we, where we think the court is moving and which are the issues that are going to be arising, Justin. Yeah, I was really struck by uh, Justice Kavanaugh's statements uh, extolling Brown versus Board of Education as the single most important decision in the nation's history, more so even than Marbury versus Madison. And, you know, Brown versus Board of Education is a case that every lawyer in the constitutional mainstream can claim. Uh, but they think radically different uh, views of what Brown versus Board of Education actually requires. Uh, this is a, an issue that came to the fore in 2007 in a case called Parents Involved in Community Schools. I was a law clerk to Justice Breyer at the time, and that raised the question as to what Brown versus Board of Education actually means. Uh, Louisville and Seattle had voluntary integration programs uh, where they said, we want the schools to reflect the racial diversity of our cities rather than only of individual neighborhoods because that leads to racial isolation in our schools. And the question is whether these sorts of programs violate Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, many people would say, of course not. Brown versus Board of Education was designed to bring people together, uh, but that's not how the Supreme Court of the United States saw it. Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion for the court that said, in the bad old days, Brown versus Board of Education set aside plans that were designed to tell students where they could go to school based on the color of their skin. These programs out of Louisville and Seattle tell students where they can go to school based on the color of their skin. And it not mattered not one whit for constitutional purposes that the programs in Louisville and Seattle were designed to bring people together. Uh, Justice Breyer wrote a very long and, in my unbiased opinion, completely convincing dissenting opinion <laughs> where he says that uh, to compare Topeka, Kansas of the 1950s to Louisville and Seattle of today, uh, is a cruel distortion of history. Interestingly, uh, Justice Kennedy wrote an opinion only for himself uh, where he tried to split the difference between the Roberts opinion and the Breyer opinion. He said these particular programs need to fall, but he did not require constitutional colorblindness. And that's a really important opinion because it marked the first step for Justice Kennedy uh, toward his ultimate position on affirmative action in higher education where uh, recently, in a case called Fisher II, he said that it can pass constitutional muster. And so when we think about where the 14th Amendment and where the Equal Protection Clause may well be moving in the future, uh, it seems quite plausible to believe that race-conscious admissions practices in higher education may well be on the way out. Uh, Kavanaugh, when he was an attorney in private practice, uh, wrote an amicus brief and a uh, in an editorial, an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal um, saying, in effect, that race-conscious uh, governmental action uh, should almost always be uh, invalidated. And so this is an area of potential flux. Uh, my old boss, Justice O'Connor, wrote an opinion in 2003 saying that affirmative action has passed constitutional muster for 25 years. In another 25 years, uh, we won't need affirmative action any longer. And at the time, in 2003, many people thought, well, that's not any time at all, you know, that's just right around the corner that you're going to sunset affirmative action. Here we are in 2018, 10 years away from that date, and I think that many supporters of affirmative action would leap at the prospect of another 10 years of affirmative action. What about some of the other areas that the court has had to look at really uh, more um, aggressive efforts to, to uh, enforce equality. We've seen some voting rights decisions. We've seen the court uh, pare back portions of the Voting Rights Act. 
what's, what is left in that uh, area, and what are the signals that we're getting from the court? Yeah, when I think about uh, e you know, the future of equal protection and thinking, I'm, I'm often focusing on schools. I want to talk about two areas that I think could uh, be in flux here. Um, one would be the issue of transgender students and access to restrooms. The Supreme Court of the United States agreed uh, to hear uh, a case about this and then ultimately decided not to resolve it. Uh, the Obama administration issued some guidance uh, that would be uh, permissive of students using bathrooms that are congruent with their gender identities. Uh, the Trump administration withdrew that guidance and uh, these cases have been decided increasingly under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause rather than under the statutory regime, thinking about Title IX. Uh, and so Justice Kennedy never wrote a, an opinion involving transgender uh, people, but he was, of course, the court's most vocal proponent of gay equality, and many people, of course, would see these issues as being linked. We don't know what Justice Kavanaugh is going to think about this issue, but he may well not be uh, as uh, protective of uh, uh, LGBT issues as uh, Kennedy was. The other uh, area uh, that I would also keep an eye on is potentially changing would be uh, with respect to unauthorized immigration. Uh, there's a case from 1982 called Plyler versus Doe where Texas sought to exclude unauthorized immigrants from its public schools. And the Supreme Court of the United States invalidated that measure uh, and so, the, yeah, obviously, it violated the Constitution. Uh, Ch uh, John Roberts, when he was a young attorney working in the Reagan Department of Justice, wrote a memorandum suggesting that that case was incorrectly decided. And if he continues to cling to that idea, then it's, you know, there's every reason to believe that states are going to pass these measures that are designed to take another run at that. So that's another area that we should keep an eye on. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to, and just to follow up on the uh, when you mentioned the uh, uh, on the on the in the gay rights uh, area, it seems uh, hard to imagine the court going back on the Obergefell decision, where which, which found uh, a, a constitutional right, a marriage equality right, but there are a lot of cases percolating up involving objectors to that right, religious objectors, and where. Uh, you know what what kind of deference uh, the government has to give to people with uh, religious beliefs or perhaps just philosophical beliefs opposed to certain equality doctrines, uh, and that is part of a as well uh, the, the courts I think increasing increasing deference to to uh, relig religious conscience. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on on where the court is going there? Can I just say one thing about uh, same-sex marriage uh, in light of Justice Kennedy stepping down? There is a common belief out there that the Supreme Court reflects the larger American society and that um, as Americans become more enlightened about particular issues, then the Supreme Court is going to become enlightened. It's almost a Whiggish interpretation of the Supreme Court's history, but it's just worth pausing for a moment to contemplate that had folks not sought same-sex marriage when they did, while Justice Kennedy was still on the court, that it's plausible that had such a case arisen while uh, Justice Kavanaugh is on the court, that that right would not have been vindicated. That, of course, was a five to four decision. Uh, and so it's worth contemplating the way that sometimes uh, whether rights are recognized in the Constitution is a product of the particular personnel that's in the court at a particular moment in time, rather than uh, the idea that the court is locked or in lockstep with the American people as a whole. I do think that there are, obviously, the Masterpiece Cake Shop is the major case uh, in this area that most recently about whether a same-sex couple uh, could buy a marriage cake, but there, we're going to see many of these cases uh, going forward, and uh, we have to keep an eye on them. Now, I think this is an area where the Supreme Court really could have a big impact on the shape of American society going forward. It might not, I don't know for sure, but in the field of gay rights, uh, I think is a, a very profound one, um, especially when it comes to access to goods and services in the marketplace. Because what Masterpiece Cake Shop, this case involving a baker that refused to sell a wedding cake to a same-sex couple, what this case is really about is whether LGBT people are going to be second-class citizens in the marketplace, whether they'll be able to go to a store and buy things the way 
Someone who's not LGBT can go and buy something at that store. Um, and it was really interesting, in the oral argument in that case, uh, there, uh, every lawyer that got up and stood before the justices was asked about whether racial discrimination could be justified by religious beliefs. And every lawyer, including the lawyers for the religious person here, said, oh, absolutely not. That would be unthinkable that we would allow race discrimination just because it was motivated by religion. And I think it was a really telling moment because the reason why it's unthinkable is not because no one ever raised these cases. If you go back into the 1960s, uh, religious, there were religious claims that were brought against the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, they were throwing the book at the, uh, at the Civil Rights Act. They were trying to strike it down by any law necessary, by any argument necessary, and including religious freedom. And the courts struck down those efforts and upheld the civil rights law and said, no, we're not going to allow businesses to discriminate on the basis of religion or any other, uh, any other basis uh, if the statute prohibits it. Um, and so I think it's unthinkable today because 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the court said, no, we're not going to allow race discrimination in the marketplace. The question I have is, 30 years from today, will it be unthinkable that LGBT people are discriminated against in the marketplace? I kind of hope it will be, but if the law allows more and more people to exempt themselves from these rules, then maybe we will have a society in which there are, you know, not a green book for African Americans touring the South, but a green book for LGBT people when they tour the South. Well, it's worth noting also that that, uh, that case uh, arose under a state civil rights law. Colorado prohibited uh, sexual orientation discrimination. But there is no similar federal law. So there would be no grounds for the issue even to arise in about half the, half the state. So it was a, a claim against uh, a state uh, civil rights law um, right. there. Um, well, the, uh, the, 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 the Trump administration took that same position about uh, uh, race being different. And they said that the uh, you know the the idea of, of uh, equality and, and 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 vindicating you know racial equality uh, really just can't be compared to the you know relatively recent right to same-sex marriage. That's what they said. That it just isn't in the same uh, class. And, but that's the argument. It's not in the same class. It's like a category. Okay, so why isn't it in the same class? I mean, I'll sit down with Justice, Chief Justice Roberts and have this conversation. I think it's actually a really hard argument to say, actually, we're going to allow people to discriminate on the basis of their sexual orientation, but not on the basis of their race. Uh, they're just irrelevant characteristics to the issue at hand. So, uh, yeah, I think that there are, yeah, Justice Alito has said this in a couple different places. Well, race is different. Um, but saying race is different is not the same thing as providing an explanation for why race is different. That's persuasive, and I think it's really hard to make a persuasive argument in this context. It's worth noting that when the Supreme Court heard the challenge to Title II of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that interracial marriage was not yet recognized as a uh, constitutional right. That doesn't happen until three years later with Loving versus Virginia. Uh, and so this, I am complete in complete agreement with Adam that this idea that you can just say race is different, well, one of the reasons that race may well be different is because the Supreme Court of the United States said that this sort of discrimination uh, is impermissible and against our constitutional order. Uh, and if it doesn't demonstrate uh, similar solicitude toward gay equality, uh, then uh, you know, sexual orientation will be different as well, but just in a bad way. Although, again, though, we did have a federal statute involving that equality, and here we don't yet at, at, this, at this point. So there but what? none of the principles articulated in Masterpiece Cake Shop, for instance, or these cases turn on whether it's a state or a federal law, right? So I get the distinction you're making. Um, yeah, we don't have a federal law that bans discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Maybe the court would be more deferential if Congress were to pass such a law. That's certainly possible, but the underlying principles that the court has articulated in these cases, that we need to respect the religious liberty rights of the business owner, even when it's a business that's making the claim, not the business owner at the end of the day, right? The Masterpiece Cake Shop case, what's the name of the baker? It's the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the name of his company, right? It's the company that's being, that's filing the lawsuit here. And so if we allow these companies to have this kind of freedom, it almost doesn't matter whether it's a federal law or a state law, that religious liberty right will be just as strong in both contexts, so. And we do have several cases in the pipeline that address this issue, probably the, the one that might uh, reach the Supreme Court first is called Arlene's Flowers. It's about a florist 
uh, from Washington State, uh, similar similar situation that it's a creative expression of her uh, of her faith and uh, doing uh, preparing the arrangements for a same-sex wedding would would uh, would be uh, offensive to those to those beliefs. Um, so uh, so basically. Supreme Court not really going to have much impact on the future. Is that kind of a way to sum up uh, <laughs> what? what uh, uh, are there are there areas that we're not that we're that we're not thinking about that that might you know sleeper areas things that the court may be doing and area, ideas that it is developing that really are, are a bit further below the surface. I mean, one issue that we have not spoken about, but we would be remiss if we did not bring up, is the issue of uh, reproductive rights. Uh, you know, um, this is uh, something that has evidently been on the court's mind, um, and sometimes you can pay attention to absence in Supreme Court opinions, and they can tell you where the court is heading. Uh, there were two major uh, uh, opinions that were issued last term that got rid of precedents, thinking about the Janus decision and the Wayfair decision, where uh, they were wrestling with the legitimacy of overturning a precedent. The most prominent case involving uh, precedent and stare decisis, letting the decision stand, is a case called Casey from 1992, uh, which has sort of supplanted Roe versus Wade as the single most important decision involving reproductive rights. Uh, you would have thought that both of these decisions, Janus and Wayfair, that was just decided last year, did, would have cited Casey at great length. Uh, they cited Casey collectively a grand total of zero times. Uh, and that is an indication, I believe, uh, that there are some members of the Supreme Court uh, that view Roe versus Wade and Casey as tainted and as illegitimate and the refusal to cite the opinions in a majority opinion is a way of, in effect, trying to uh, weaken uh, those precedents so that they can say, we haven't relied on these opinions in some time uh, when reproductive rights become important. Of course, Justice Kennedy was the improbable sort of fifth vote for reaffirming the core of Roe versus Wade in Casey and he's no longer on the Supreme Court, so this is an issue that uh, many people believe is in flux, and I'm in agreement with them. Yeah, I think you know uh, people often wonder: Is Roe versus Wade going to be overturned? Is uh, women going to lose the right to cho choose abortion? Um, I think it's important to recognize, first of all, just in the wake of the Casey case, how much women have already lost that right. Um, so we have. Uh, the states, 25 states, have these uh, trap laws, uh, targeted regulations on abortion providers that, that uh, are known in the business as clinic closing laws. They make it really hard for clinics to operate. They have to have all these requirements. Uh, and as a result, a lot of clinics have shuttered uh, in the last few years. Uh, and in fact, there's seven states in which there's only a single abortion clinic in the entire state. One of those states, by the way, is Missouri. Missouri has St. Louis and Kansas City, two huge cities one abortion clinic. Um, so we're already seeing a real curtailment of women's rights in that way in terms of access. Um, uh, and I think the only remaining question is whether the court will overturn Roe versus Wade. And, and I think undoubtedly that it will. It's hard to follow that, honestly. Uh, so the one thing I would say about uh, that we saw even this week about stare decisis, there was this case pending called uh, Gamble in which I got a lot of attention because of the potential implications for Paul Manafort. So, so the case was about the double jeopardy clause, uh, which the basic idea of the clause is you can't be punished twice for the same crime, but there's a separate sovereign's exception, uh, which says that if you can be punished by a different sovereign for the same crime. So in, in this case involved uh, felon in possession of a weapon, which is a crime both in Alabama and uh, federally, and uh, as part of a plea agreement, Mr. Gamble had uh, not gotten a particularly long sentence uh, on crimes charged by the state of Alabama, and so the federal uh, system swooped in. He's then convicted under federal law and receives a few additional years for the same offense. And so the question in front of the court is, do we keep the separate sovereign's doctrine or abandon it? And as it turned, and, and the reason this is, relates to Paul Manafort is because one of the threats to him is that uh, Trump could pardon him for the federal offenses, but he could also then be charged for tax offenses under various states' laws. And so he, that makes him pardon-proof. Um, 
But the interesting thing about the discussion, it was, it was almost entirely about stare decisis. And so it has implications, I think, well beyond the double jeopardy issue to what we're talking about here. And you know, interestingly, Justice Kavanaugh said that to overturn a decision, it would have to be grievously wrong. Um, and now that becomes the question of how would we interpret uh, Roe as whether it was grievous, the decision was grievously wrong or not. Uh, Justice uh, Kagan referred to stare decisis as a doctrine of humility. Um, and in that, in the case of separate sovereigns doctrine, one that over 30 justices had signed off on over time. We could do the head count on how many justices have signed off on opinions related to Roe. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see if the if the court goes in one direction on gamble whether that might in some ways box them in a little mm. bit on cases like um, challenges to Roe. Yeah, it certainly did seem like there was a kind of a pantomime going on in that argument because, you know, and uh, you know traditionally a lot of uh, you know people concerned about criminal justice think the idea of being nailed twice for the exact same thing is sort of uh, intrinsically unfair, and yet uh, you had really. Certainly, the, the, you know, most of the liberals on the court seem to have little problem with this situation in this particular case and seem to find there were just statistically not a lot of instances where it was a problem, uh, or at least in a, a circumstance that, that occurred. Um, uh, let me ask, you know, uh, maybe we'll step back for a moment before we start uh, hearing questions from, from the audience. Um, you know, historically, the Supreme Court has seemed to, you know, function most uh, efficiently when it moves in the general direction of society, and there, there are periods in time when that's uh, been said to be the case. Uh, I know in the 1960s, the Supreme Court and the Congress and the, and the, the Democratic uh, Presidential Administration on, on domestic issues were all, for a while, moving sort of in the, in the same uh, direction. Um, there are other periods in time when the court has been at odds with the elected branches, and uh, I guess most, most famously in the, for most of the 1930s, where the the, the court that had been appointed from you know 1902 onwards uh, was uh, uh, frustrating a lot of the New Deal initiatives until uh, until 1937, uh, and it led to uh, you know very uh, dramatic uh, confrontation between President Roosevelt and the and the Supreme Court. Uh, looking ahead, we just saw uh, you know an election where you know part of Congress uh, shifted against uh, President Trump's party. We have another uh, very important election coming up uh, now in less than less than two years. Uh, what what role is the court likely to play, either if uh, you know President Trump is, is reelected and and the and the Republican uh, party continues or reasserts its its control over Washington, uh, and what role is it likely to play if if uh, if the country moves in, in other directions? Well, a little humility in making any kind of prediction of this sort. Uh, <laughs> if we had had this conversation in the spring of 2016 and we were talking about the future of the Supreme Court, we'd be saying, well, Merrick Garland, when he gets on the Supreme Court, is going to overturn Citizens United, overturn the Second Amendment gun case, and, you know, it's a whole different world. And, uh, in fact, there were a lot of uh, liberal uh, constitutional law professors who were writing articles about how our time has finally come. Um, <laughs> Maybe not, uh, and uh, and so I think it's it's always difficult. You want to be careful about predicting the future, always in light of the fact that the future is so unpredictable. Um, and I think we see a very strong trend in terms of we have a lot of young conservative Supreme Court justices. Um, but you never know what happens in the next election. You never know if Clarence Thomas decides to resign or becomes sick. You know he's uh, he's not he's not as young as the others, and so that might change. If there's a Democratic president, might get to replace Clarence Thomas, and then all of a sudden you're the you're under of what the court's like does shift. So I think it's very difficult to predict what exactly is going uh, to happen. But Let's say it's the same group of people we know and love who are uh, on the Supreme Court. Well, but we know they won't be, right? So I guess that's the thing, right? I mean, people are going to, to leave. But I, I know I do think that we know that the direction that the court is currently going in, uh, and uh, it's a very conservative court, and it, it does seem like on some issues it may be out of line with uh, the American people. Um, but even that, I'm always hesitant to say, I don't know exactly where the American people are anymore. And it doesn't seem to be where, where I live. Yeah. What, <laughs> hanging over our conversation is uh, sort of an expectation about what 
Justice Gorsuch is going to do and what Justice Kavanaugh is going to do. At this point, Roberts has been on the Supreme Court for quite a while, and that's true of Thomas and Alito as well. And it's relatively early for uh, both Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And I should say that if you look over the last several decades of the Supreme Court's history, one of the dominant trends is the way that many GOP-appointed justices have drifted leftward over time. Uh, that statement could be true of you know, my old boss, Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy in certain respects, certainly uh, Justice Stevens, Justice Souter. There are lots and lots of, from the rights perspective, disappointments on the Supreme Court. Um, what makes me think that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are unlikely to follow that trajectory is that the people that I just mentioned a moment ago, including O'Connor and Stevens and Souter, none of them had experience working in an executive branch. Uh, all of the current GOP-appointed uh, justices have experience working in the executive branch in a Republican administration, and what that means is you know, these folks are sort of battle-tested uh, and that they are not going to be seduced by cocktail parties in Georgetown over time, right? They're not going to fall prey to what used to be called the greenhouse effect, right? Named after Linda Greenhouse, where they want to be, uh, you know, have their opinions be celebrated in the New York Times. Nobody talks about the Liptak effect, and it's not because Adam Liptak is not a really effective Supreme Court uh, He's reporter. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would just say one thing on this, and that's, uh, you know, in, in the criminal justice arena, with the exception of a handful of places, there's nowhere to go but up, honestly, and that's been true for a very long time. Um, justice Gorsuch has uh, been partnering with liberal justices on a number of issues, including uh, a very fiery dissent with Justice Sotomayor from a denial of cert in a case about the Sixth Amendment's Confrontation Clause. So he, he may be an interesting player in that realm, but I also just want to say that you know the Supreme Court is not, uh, it, they set a floor, not a ceiling, right? And so we've seen lower court, state Supreme Courts going farther than the court has done in, on both Fourth Amendment and Eighth Amendment issues in the last few years. And, the, and state legislatures are changing on a number of issues as well. Um, and so we oftentimes, I think, put the Supreme Court on a pedestal, but it's not the only way to change the law. This is the part of the evening where we get to take questions from all of you. But before we do, how about a round of applause for our fabulous panelists tonight? I'm Paul Kovich. Uh, the, my question is, uh, a Texas judge just recently ruled that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional. If this case gets to the Supreme Court, how do you think the court will decide? You want to take that? I don't want to take that. Right? Who wants to take that? Um, yeah, well, so first of all, um, uh, yeah, there was this ruling just, uh, just the other day um, uh, by uh, a judge in Texas that uh, declared the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, unconstitutional. One provision he declared unconstitutional and then said, well, because that provision is unconstitutional, we've got to throw out the entire law, all 2,000 pages of it, even dealing with a variety of issues that had nothing to do with that particular provision uh, at issue. Um, uh, most people uh, don't think that that case is likely to get to the Supreme Court um, because it's a pretty poorly reasoned decision, um, and it seems likely that that might get overturned before then. But um, you know, it's it's so hard to predict what's going to happen with the litigation. One thing we know for sure is that law law professors cannot predict what's going to happen with the <laughs> Affordable Care Act in the Supreme Court. That's the only thing we can all agree on, is that we can't predict that. But I would suggest that I don't think Roberts has taken all this heat uh, to save the law just to now vote to overturn it. But. Yeah, and just to explain what, what, what happened was because uh, the, the original Supreme Court decision upholding most of that law concluded it was a tax uh, because of people who didn't carry insurance had to pay a tax penalty. Uh, the Congress last year eliminated the tax penalty, and therefore the argument was, well, there's no longer a tax, so therefore it's not an exercise of federal taxing power, therefore the, the law must fall. And that's what that judge reasoned, but uh, there were certainly uh, other, other views on that, and perhaps that tax would be, could be reinstated by the Congress as well in some form. We'll have to, we'll have to see. Uh, not everyone thought it was poorly reasoned. The president tweeted uh, quite complimentary. <laughs> Uh, views of, of the decision. Point well taken. Bill Kelleher, I have a question about double jeopardy. Mm -hmm. 
Um, isn't our federal criminal justice system and the state criminal justice systems an intrinsic part of our federalist system and therefore would require a constitutional amendment to change rather than being able to, the Supreme Court being able to change it? The double jeopardy clause is incorporated against the states, so it applies both to the state criminal prosecutions and federal prosecutions. Now, interestingly, at the oral argument, Justices Gorsuch and, and Justice uh, Ginsburg uh, sort of teamed up to address, I think, part of uh, what's at the heart of your question, which is this idea that uh, we as citizens are, are thought of in some ways as the sovereign, and the federal system isn't, is supposed to divide the ways in which the, the states and the federal government can act uh, against our self-interest, um, not multiply. And what, the, what Justice Gorsuch and Ginsburg were arguing is that by allowing both to come after you for the exact same offense, you're in, fa in fact multiplying the harms that the government can do against a, a citizen. Um, now, I, I think that they're very much in the minority and that that's not where the court, the majority of the court seems to be uh, willing to, to reinforce the separate sovereign's doctrine uh, rather than amend it. But, but that is a real tension around, in, in this opinion, around how our system of federalism should work. Jim Lamaco, I'm interested in your uh, comments about whether it would be a good idea to enlarge the Supreme Court and, not, and whether it would be a good idea, not just politically, because you know, for a lot of Democrats, that would be a great idea if they take uh, over Congress, but also would that be a good thing in general because it would give the Supreme Court uh, wouldn't be likely to be, um, you know, uh, have long periods of time where it's a conservative court, a liberal court, that it would be, there'd be a little more uh, flexibility in the court. This is a proposal that has received a fair amount of traction recently, especially among sort of liberal law professors who, uh, you know, view uh, the seat that Judge Garland was nominated to fill as, in effect, a stolen seat because uh, people refuse to give a hearing. Uh, this is uh, derisively sometimes referred to as an effort to pack the court, right? Uh, with a sort of reference back to President Roosevelt's, uh, you know, mood. Um, so it, I, I guess I should say for my own part, I, I am surprised uh, that uh, as many sort of liberal law professors have started banging the table to pack the court uh, as, as there have. One of the other proposals that one often sees is uh, trying to introduce some sort of term limits uh, where there would be 18-year terms with an effort to do lots of things, but including uh, eliminating the <coughs> practice where uh, some presidents are able to nominate many justices and some presidents are able to nominate you know, one or, in some instances, none at all. Um, so there are a lot of uh, proposals that are out there. It does raise the question, to refer back to the prior one, about would this have to happen through you know, a constitutional amendment. The, the Constitution of the United States does not specify the number of justices, but it does talk about people serving for what we think of as you know, life, although the technical term is good behavior. Timothy Moline, former Department of Health Services in LA County. My question is on Janus v. AFSCME, the way it was eventually came down, how union members have to represent even non-union members, even if it is an agency shop now. Would it be legal for union members and union management then in response to somehow initiate legislation within the states to where non-union members then would not be covered by what they have to be, or told they can be covered by without becoming members? In other words, would the union be able to respond that way? It's a little unclear in the sense that we don't know exactly how the court might rule on such an effort, but I think we are going to see some, some efforts in that direction. So um, uh, the Janus case, which we've talked about a few times, this public employee case, um, the court had, for 40 years had held to this case, uh, a case called the Abood case. It was a, a case um, uh, from the 1970s, and the Abood case said, look, sometimes you have a union and it represents members 
uh, who are paying, who pay dues and who help support the politics of the union or whatnot. But sometimes it also represents non-members. It negotiates with a, uh, an employer or it negotiates, in this case, with uh, a governmental entity. And some people don't want to join the union. You know, like, I don't, I don't want to join them. So they don't join the union, but they get the benefits of the negotiation that the union has with the governmental ent entity. And by law, the union has to represent those people, even if they're not paying dues, even if they're not members. Um, uh, and the idea was historically, under the Abood case, that the union could collect what they call fair share fees from these non-members. These non-members could be paid a certain amount, but they couldn't go to politics, couldn't go for anything like that, but could just pay for the collective bargaining that gets the benefits that those people who are not members are taking advantage of. And the Supreme Court here in the Stannis case said, no, um, uh, you cannot force people who are not members to pay these fair share fees. And so it means that unions still have the legal obligation to represent both members and non-members when dealing with the government, a public employee union, um, but it cannot take fees from those non-members. And so I think we are going to see some pushback from unions to try to, if they can't do anything else, to try to at least um, eliminate some of the coverage they provide for non-members uh, so that they can sort of provide an incentive for people to actually join. Um, but we haven't seen, I don't know of any reform that's been adopted yet on that issue. Uh, thank you for everything you said, albeit incredibly depressing. Um, because we've talked about um, the codification of LGBT individuals, the second class citizens, we mm -hmm. don't predict the future, but just said the end of Roe v. Wade, which hurts my heart. Um, so I just wonder if we can, like, what do we have to look forward to? <laughs> right? No, and I, I mean, let's be real. It's, uh, the last talk was like how to be happy in the current time. And then so, us. Right. right. No, so I, 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 I do, it's really important to acknowledge these things, right? And not to just, um, to, to go by it. But, but what is there to look forward to? Uh, and or what can we do, right? Because now I'm thinking protest, but then I'm going to be surveilled forever. And that's going to start. But, <laughs> What, what are your suggestions? Like, what, let's, what's the positive? Uh, let me just say one, one thing that you can do is actually go to the Supreme Court website and listen for yourself to the oral arguments. They're posted uh, at the end of every argument week, uh, the entire arguments. There's also a transcript. And if you listen to them, you'll see that these people, all of them, are taking these questions extremely seriously. Whether you ultimately you know, uh, agree or disagree with the conclusions they reach and if, uh, or think they're... You, pretextual or what have you. Uh, most people who, who come to Washington, if they you know, are familiar with Congress and they've seen or seen on C-SPAN or listened to it, you know, they're, they're not always bowled over uh, by the oratory or complexity of thinking that goes on. The, it's, I've heard. <laughs> but, but, but I found that almost anyone who actually comes to, to sit and watch a Supreme Court argument uh, walks away uh, having been in that rare experience of, of having uh, his or her expectations exceeded. So I think at the very least, uh, listen to those arguments, listen carefully as well, particularly to the, the justices who you, you expect to disagree with. And, and you may get a sense that at least they take what they're doing seriously and they understand what's at stake. And that is what the court itself imagines that everyone in the country is doing and why they respect what goes on there. I'm not so sure they're right about it. So that was just one basic thought. You guys might have more specific ideas. I do think that in addition to, as was said a moment ago, trying to look to other outlets in order to extend protections through state Supreme Courts or through state legislatures, that even at the Supreme Court, it's incumbent upon liberals to try to find common ground with uh, the libertarian inflected vision of constitutional law that is ascendant in some right-leaning circles. It's possible that Gorsuch may be willing to go in that direction, and there are a few issues um, that we might be able to find common ground without sacrificing, including an area that I write about is about corporal punishment in public schools, which still exists in this great nation of ours. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh, when he was the nominee, spoke about you know, textualism and taking the words of the Constitution very seriously. The Supreme Court had an opportunity to rein in corporal punishment in the 1970s, and they declined to do so in the face of really egregious facts uh, because they said it doesn't violate the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. It doesn't even, via, it doesn't even qualify as punishment for purposes of the Constitution because it doesn't stem from a criminal conviction. Uh, but you know, if we are serious about taking the text 
and as Jess said a moment ago, these folks are uh, trying to live up to their commitments, and we have to take them at their word and offer the arguments. And uh, it is possible that with respect of you know, freedom of speech, we may be able to uh, make some common ground in order to uh, have our constitutional doctrine uh, be uh, better than it currently is. And if I can just give an example of that that's happened this term. Uh, there's a case called Tim's versus Indiana that's pending uh, that was argued a few weeks ago about uh, whether or not the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause, which you've probably never heard of and you would not be alone. Uh, it's right between the excessive bail clause and the cruel and unusual punishments clause. And whether or not it applies to the states, because the Supreme Court has actually never made that decision as to whether it's incorporated and whether someone who's been charged with an offense or, or, in, or possibly not even charged with an offense under state law can br bring this claim. And the case involves civil forfeiture. So this was a, a gentleman who was um, charged with very limited uh, drug dealing and related to, an, related to his opioid addic addiction. And the government, uh, state of Indiana, seized his automobile um, as part of his punishment. And he claimed that was an excessive fine. So that's up in front of the court. And I actually think that there's a very good chance that the court is going to incorporate the clause against the states, which could have serious implications not only for civil forfeiture, but also for situations like we saw rising in Ferguson, where people are being incarcerated because they're too poor to pay fines and, and fees. But the reason it comes to mind with this is that if you take go to the court's website and take a look at the amicus <coughs> briefs, what you're going to find is very uh, uh, right-leaning conservative libertarian organizations and the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund partnering on briefs saying the Constitution has to protect against this kind of, of state overreach. And so it's a really good example of that kind of bipartisanship work being done on a handful of issues. It's not going to happen with every issue, but it's at least some good news. <laughs> Ending on good news, that's the way to do it. So this, we are just out of time, but uh, before we close, I'd like to thank uh, UCLA, our co-presenter tonight. So a big round of applause for them for making tonight possible. Also, thank you to all of you for joining us. It's great to see you here. If you were in the simulcast room and overflow down the hall, our panelists will be uh, here during the reception, so you can ask questions. Also, if you didn't have a chance to ask a question here inside, I know there were a lot of you. And finally, a big round of applause for our great panelists tonight. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thanks. That's all right.